um, and then skipping ahead to chapter 6, um, verses 1 to 9. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, not any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desires on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, and from chapter six, starting at verse one. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Thanks for the reading, Peter. Uh, my name's Rod. If you are newish, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC, and we're continuing, as you've heard from Ken, in this series through Deuteronomy, a big book, a lot of chapters that we're going to be covering. And although we're only doing two chapters tonight, there's a lot jammed into them. So in a sense, we'll be sort of skating across the top of Deuteronomy 5 and 6. Um, but let me pray for us, ask that God will help us to grapple with a really important, well-known section of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given to us. We acknowledge that you tell us it is living and active, and we see that it is applied to our hearts and minds as your spirit works in us if we've come to trust in Christ. And so we pray that you might do that good work in us tonight, that you would challenge us afresh, that you would help us to hear your voice and to respond rightly. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was just before 5 a.m. on the 13th of May 2011 when a 38-year-old man named Michael Fox from Narrabeen drove a truck that he'd hired with a ladder on the back to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. With his ladder, he scaled the security fence and he climbed the bridge to hang his banner and information for the world, please help my kids, kids first. He'd been discharged from the army, army suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And sadly, his marriage had broken down and his three children were in the custody of their mother. And in a note he allegedly left in his truck for police, he said, you've taken my kids, I've taken your bridge. And in his lone act of defiance, he stopped the trains, he left the bridge empty in the morning rush hour, which usually sees 40,000 cars crossing it. For nearly two hours, he brought Australia's largest city to a standstill until he decided he would abseil down into the custody of the waiting police. New South Wales Business Chamber said 600,000 people were late to work that day, which cost Australia $2.2 million in lost productivity. But having done all that, let me ask the question, did he break any of the Ten Commandments? He did claim to steal the bridge, but it you know, he showed in the end that he didn't take it with him, and so it's still there. But he was really struggling with getting his message out. But the police force, of course, saw it um, somewhat differently. He was taken to court that afternoon, and he was charged with breaking the law. The two laws that he broke were obstructing traffic and climbing on a bridge. Well, even if he had broken the Ten Commandments, would the average Australian care? Many view God's laws today as just out-of-date regulations that you might feel free to ignore or deliberately break at any point, while others see them perhaps as useful occasionally as a reference point to defend their own character. You know, I'm a good bloke because I haven't killed anyone. Well, Christians surely will have a different attitude to God's law. But what is our relationship for laws that were written over three and a half thousand years ago? 
That's our big question that we're going to consider this evening. How are Christians supposed to respond to God's law? Sometimes that relationship has been a bit thorny over the past couple of millennium as people try and work through that. So let's consider that tonight. How are Christians supposed to respond to God's law? The first answer to that question is this. By living out what is written on our hearts. By living out what is written on our hearts. So notice how it starts again in verses 1 and 2. The scene is set for the basis of the giving of God's law. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. So this is the second of three speeches that make up the book of Deuteronomy, three long speeches or sermons, we might say. And Moses begins here by announcing to the Israelites that they really need to hear the law. He is declaring it in their hearing. We'd say that's an obvious truism. It's literally declaring it in your ears. But the point he's trying to make right up front is that they need to listen carefully because God is a speaking God. He delivers what he would like them to do in the spoken word, in this case through Moses, as he re-recites the commands that were given some 40 years earlier. Remember, they'd come out of Egypt in the Exodus. They had traveled to Mount Sinai or to Horeb, as it's referred to here in Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 19, all of the nation is gathered together. Exodus 20, Moses delivers the Ten Commandments for the first time as God gives them to him. And so the Sinai covenant was part of God's unfolding Old Testament agreement with his people. That's the focus there in verse 2, isn't it? That they were part of a covenant between the Lord God and his people Israel. And that had started way back with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The first promises given to Abraham that then were handed down to his son Isaac and then to Jacob. And eventually as the nation reached the point of being at Mount Sinai 40 years ago, that relationship in a collective sense with the nation is expanded on, made clear. And I think we often wrongly assume as Christians today, reading back and looking at the Old Testament, that the Ten Commandments in particular were given to Israel so that they might be saved through obeying them. But notice the brief introduction to the Ten Commandments in verse 6, because this verse is crucial before Moses launches into command number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, this is super important in understanding the covenant because it reminds us that the nation of Israel already has a relationship with the Lord, or literally Yahweh here. He had already saved the nation out of Egypt, the land of slavery. And so the law that is being given is not to be obeyed in order to earn God's love. God has already expressed his love to them in rescuing them out of that superpower of the day. No, it is in response to God's love that they are to live this way. They've already been saved and now they're being instructed in how to live in covenant relationship with a God who already loves them. And so grace, God's undeserved favor or kindness, precedes the law which follows. So keep that in mind as we now get into the Ten Commandments, which I'll skate over fairly quickly and just talk about a few of the highlights. If you come to the first four of the Ten Commandments in verses 7 to 15, we have the Godward commands, the vertical ones sometimes referred to. They really focus on our relationship with God, the Israelites' worship of God. 
So notice the first commandment in verse 7 is to have no other gods before me. Now, this one is foundational for the nine commands which will follow. It's all about the expectation of absolute priority being given to our relationship with Yahweh. God had rescued them. He'd now come to live with them as symbolized by the tabernacle, which was amongst them, the tent of meeting with the Lord. But the question is, how will God remain in their presence? Well, firstly, they're not to have other gods. And the second commandment builds on this along with the third. This really sets out some of the dimensions here of this unique relationship. The requirements are about worship. Notice the second command. It's a prohibition on the use of images or idols. Now, when we read this, I think we naturally think of false gods, foreign idols, and that's certainly encompassed in it. But it's also about the use of images for the one true God, for Yahweh. Because it was common practice in the ancient world that you would create statues and objects that became the focal point for worship. But any representation, even of the true God, Yahweh, would be a misrepresentation of his power and his character. Any effort to reduce the invisible creator of the universe to a piece of wood or stone would by necessity lead to false understanding and false worship. And so they're not to do it. And the third command, again, like the first, is quite brief. Along this same theme, but now don't misuse the name of the Lord. Or don't take the Lord's name in vain. And that word translated misuse can mean to carry or to wear even. The command is referring to more than just uttering God's name wrongly. In general, what it's getting at here is it's a prohibition on a lack of seriousness about God's presence with them. If you use God's name in an offhand way as a swear word or something as if he's not even present and you don't recognize him that he is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of your life, then you have misunderstood his power and his presence with his people. You are scorning him, insulting him by such light-hearted use of his name. And so this prohibits, stops the people misrepresenting God in their speech. And then fourthly, the command in verses 12 to 15, perhaps slightly different in character regarding the Sabbath. There's a bit more explanation here. The word uh, observe or remember the Sabbath in verse 12 is in the context of this covenant obligation. They're to observe it without lapse is the idea. It's to be an ongoing priority. Now, the word itself, Sabbath, just means cease or rest. That's the essence of what it is. And, of course, it referred to a day of rest, a day out from the normal routine, which under the Old Covenant was the Saturday, which then shifts to Sunday in the New Testament as the believers make it the day of Christ's resurrection. But the reason given, notice, for having a day of rest, of ceasing from their work, is given as Israel's redemption. God says to them, it's because of their exodus from slavery that there is a day of rest. In Egypt, there was no interruption of their forced labor. You remember in the book of Exodus, one of the reasons Pharaoh had a problem with Moses suggesting that he take the people out to worship God in the wilderness was, well, that work will stop. I've got jobs for them every day. You're taking my labor force away. You're not leaving. You're to stay here. There was no ceasing from their rest, no resting from their work. 
But here, Yahweh insists that they will do this for their own good, but also that it might give a time for them to focus on him. And then from verse 16, there's a shift. Those first four verse uh, commands are all about the Godward element of right worship, right response to God. But now there's a whole lot of horizontal commands in terms of our relationship and interaction with other people. They're all about loving our neighbor as ourself. If the first four are about loving God with all our heart, then the next six are about loving others as we love ourselves. And the first of these six is honoring of our parents, which Ken highlighted at the start. So here the focus is on family. Uh, we haven't got to the more distant neighbor or society generally, perhaps in this one, but the family is the building block of society. And the word honour here means to give weight to, to esteem. It's to give the place of precedence. It means more than just being respectful of wishes. You know, my parents said I can't take the car out tonight. Oh, I better consider what they said. You know, I meant to consider their opinion. It's not quite as weak as that kind of way that's often interpreted by people. It's about giving them the first priority over other people in your life in terms of their input into your life command number one is all about Yahweh the Lord having priority over all of life and here in command five it's about your parents having priority over all other human relationships but then in command six to nine we've got the ones that make the news today you know the vast majority of the front page of the newspaper if it relates to moral issues at least has to do with murder and adultery, and stealing, and false testimony in court. They're all external actions which are easy to see and to measure, and to point the finger at, unlike number 10, coveting, which we'll come to in a moment. But I think these four are perhaps the most basic. Uh, we, they're understood universally. You know, you shall not murder. It's a basic prohibition against killing. It doesn't really require more explanation than that. The seventh command, to not commit adultery refers to sexual relations with someone who is already married or engaged to be married. The eighth command, you shall not steal. Again, general prohibition of stealing of any kind in any circumstances. There's just no reason or excuse that can be given. The ninth command perhaps requires a little bit more explanation. You shall not give false testimony. That's a really good translation from the original. The focus is really highlighting a judicial setting. It's about the courtroom, or in their day, at the city gate, where often where the courtroom was. Now, we might think, well, does that mean Israelites could lie outside of court? Didn't matter as long as you told the truth when you're giving a testimony about your neighbor. No, I mean, it should have a broader implication, obviously, for the whole nation, though, to be a community of truthfulness, but particularly in a courtroom where a person's testimony could lead to great consequences for the person they spoke against, they were to speak the truth. Which brings us to the tenth and the final command relating to coveting, the one that's often overlooked because it's an internal sin, an unseen sin of the mind, if you like. The word translated covet means to desire, to yearn for, to lust after someone or something for your own use or gratification. And notice it's very broad, the description that follows the explanation relates to your neighbor's entire family and all his property. 
And this comprehensive command here I think is important because it relates back to all the other commands before it. If a person violates this command of coveting, it could well lead to some of the ones further up, like stealing and murder and adultery, etc. Well, I think we know the Ten Commandments fairly well. I'm sure many of you do and have read them plenty of times. I think our struggle more as we apply these now is what do they mean for the Christian today? How is the believer meant to interact with them? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that unlike the Israelites who are told in verse 2 they were under the old covenant, we are not under the old covenant. The new covenant that is brought in through Christ's death and resurrection that we are part of if we have placed our faith in Jesus is a covenant which does not have conditions. It's not conditional. There are no covenant curses which hang over our heads as there were under the old covenant for the people of Israel. Under the new covenant, the first thing that the law does for us is to make us conscious of our sin. So have a look at Romans 3 verse 20, which will come up on the screen. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so the law acts like a mirror for our life that we hold up. And it shows us that we're a sinner. And if we're unconvinced about that, Jesus actually raises the bar further when he comes along. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount and in other parts of his teaching, he makes it very clear as he interprets the law for us, showing us its true intent, that it's even harder than the old covenant people of Israel understood. The command not to murder is no longer just about that external action. It's about an internal attitude so that if I'm ever angry with another person, I have failed to obey this command. Similarly with the command regarding adultery. It's no longer just about sexual faithfulness in marriage. It's also about lust because that too is a betrayal of my spouse. And so Jesus raises the bar and he helps us to see that we can never meet God's laws. But if that was where the law left Christians, then we would just be in despair. We'd think, well, all it shows us is that we're hopeless before God, that we're sinners. But it shouldn't just do that. It should lead us to Christ. We recognize that we cannot be acceptable to God by living a life trying to do good works, obey laws. And so we're in desperate need of a savior. And so we learn several times in the New Testament that this is what the law should do for us. Galatians 3 verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now Jesus coming doesn't mean that the law is set aside as irrelevant. It just gets thrown out. No, rather we're justified by trusting in Jesus because he can obey the law perfectly where we cannot. And that's why Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He fulfills the law perfectly, doing what we fail to do, so that he can be our perfect substitute, that his perfect righteousness can be credited to us sinners who are in desperate need 
of the forgiveness that only he can offer. But what happens as we think about the law, if we've come to that point, if we recognize our need for Jesus as as our saviour, we place our trust in him, what then? How then do we respond to God's law? Well, when we place our faith in Christ, he grants us the Holy Spirit who then writes God's law on our hearts. Have a look at Hebrews 10, verse 16, where the writer states that the Spirit testifies that this is the covenant, that is the new covenant, I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So as God's new covenant people, we need to grow in living out what is written on our hearts. That's why I've given that the title of this first point. We're not under the law, we're under grace, says the Apostle Paul. But God's moral law from the Old Testament is written on our hearts by the Spirit and it guides us as we seek to live for Christ. We're under Christ's rule now and we need to obey him. And Jesus summarizes what his followers should focus on as they think about the law. I mean, it was a struggle even under the old covenant for the Jews that came to him in the first century. You know, ah, 613 laws, Jesus. How are we supposed to think about these things? And of course, famously, at a number of points, Jesus wraps up all the law into two. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. Love others as you love yourself. And of course, those commands are given in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, which we had read earlier, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second half comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if Christians need something to focus on as they think of through the law and its application to our lives, if we could respond and live in light of those two summary laws, we'd make a great start in pursuing what God is seeking for us under the new covenant, that we might truly love God, we might truly love others. But it's not that easy, is it? Loving God in an idolatrous world, loving others in a selfish world, It doesn't come to us that easily, even with the gift of the Holy Spirit. We struggle with this. And it's because our world is placing many temptations in our path all the time to think about self first rather than the other, to think about some other pursuit that becomes my idol rather than to think about the God who made me and designed me to relate to him and to put him first. In her book, It's My Turn, uh, Ruth Bell Graham Billy Graham's wife, recalls growing up as a missionary kid in China. And she tells how at one point a Western oil company came to the area of China they were living in and wanting to start a branch of their company, open up further operations in China, and they wanted to find somebody who could manage and lead this new operation. They wanted somebody who was young. They wanted somebody who was a university graduate, a proven leader, somebody who was fluent in the Chinese language, And they'd done their research in the area and they'd identified the person that they wanted. He was a 28-year-old man who happened to be a missionary in the area. And when someone asked, they went researching about him, what his salary was, they realised he got paid very little. And they said, we're going to go to him and offer him 10 times the money that he gets. And so they went and put this job offer to him and he immediately declined it. 
They came back and offered even more money. And again, he said, no, thanks. And they said, what would it take? You name the price and we'll pay you. He said, it's not a question of salary. The salary you're offering is tremendous. The problem is the job. The job is just too little. You don't understand. I'm here in China preaching the gospel of Christ to people. What I'm doing has eternal consequences. I'm not going to give that up for the love of money. They're the kind of challenges that sit before us all the time in one way or another. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes, while traditional worship still occurs in many places of the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. God says that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns it into an ultimate thing. Our hearts deify them as if they're the center of our lives because we think they will bring us safety and significance, security and fulfillment. But we need to see these things for what they are. They are a choice to stop loving God with all our heart and to put our love elsewhere. And if we give in to them, there is a gross failure in our desire to live for God, to live for others. And so it's hard. And so I'd encourage you to pray for each other, to pray for our church community collectively. That with the Spirit's help, we might work at putting off such idols, that we might work at putting off such selfishness. We might truly struggle towards loving God with all our heart and loving others as ourselves. That we might display the kind of character that will adorn the gospel for those that are watching that they might see something different about those who claim to have a personal relationship with the living God. And that brings us to a second answer, a second and final answer, and for your encouragement, a much shorter one. How are believers to respond to God's law? Well, not only by living out what God has written on their hearts, but secondly, by calling the next generation to do this, the next generation to love God and to love others. Notice what is written. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 9, Moses states, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Notice here, God's law was for all Israelites. It wasn't just for leaders. It wasn't just for adults. It was for the children, the grandchildren, all people. And notice too, it wasn't simply to be in their head, just to be able to recite a list of 10 things. It was to be on their hearts. It was to be more than ticking the box. It wasn't just a matter of legalistically conforming to an external code. It was to be central to their life. And so it had to be internalized. It had to really be put on a person's mind constantly. And so it needed to be the topic of conversation from the moment a person wake up until the point they went to sleep. It was to be there all the time, from breakfast time to bedtime. When they got up, they sat up, walked, lying down. It was meant to permeate daily life because it was relevant to every moment. And you notice the rapid sequence of verbs in this area? In these verses, it's meant us to feel the 
importance, the urgency of these instructions, which parents in particular were to take note of. Impress them, talk about them, tie them, bind them, write them. Do these things constantly. Because the commitment to love God with everything you have in verse 5 means that this is expressed not just in the individual, but is meant to be conveyed to the whole family, indeed to the whole Israelite community. Now, as we think about that for ourselves today, think about that as Christians today, we need to grasp that Jesus calls people under the new covenant to follow his commands, to say to them, if you truly love me, you will keep my commands. John 14, verse 21, just one of many examples. Jesus states, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. How do I know that somebody loves God with all their heart? That they love others and themselves? Well, they'll actually obey Christ's teaching. They'll be living it out moment by moment. And of course, there are lots of instructions for parents and others in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 1-4, about passing on the instruction that has been given to us by Christ. The apostles bring that up over and over. Now, it's not meant to be a legalistic thing. I'm not encouraging you to write on little scrolls as the Jews often did in their literal response to these verses. And they'd roll up these little scrolls and put them in little packets they'd tie onto their foreheads or onto their wrists. They'd literally go and deface their home and write around the door frames and so on. And in an effort, mind you, to try and remember to focus on God's word. By all means, use whatever you can that will help you. But it's not so much about those literal things of writing things on walls. But it's about the principle of applying God's teaching and passing it on to the next generation. It should be so crucial to us. And so there's a huge responsibility on parents to be doing that. It's the most important thing they will ever do. Often parents have got 101 things they're thinking about, how, how well the child's eating or their education, all these things. They're all great and important things. But if the one most important thing of teaching them to know about God and his love for them in Christ is missing somehow or is way down the list, then there is something wrong. And we can excuse ourselves because we think someone else will do it. You know, you may send, if you're a parent, your children to a Christian school. That's a wonderful gift. Wonderful that others will speak into your child's life. But that doesn't absolve you as the parent. It's wonderful that we have kids' church here on a Sunday. And often people look at a church these days and think, oh, well, if they've got a kids' program, that's a bonus track, as if it's not essential to the life of that community of believers. No, it's essential. That's why we put so much onus on it. If you are committed already to serving in our ministries in the morning to kids, that's a wonderful blessing that you're giving to other people, whether they're your children or not. See, this is not just about parents, whether you're a parent or a grandparent here tonight or not. It's about passing on the truth of God's word to the next generation with whichever opportunities you have. And so often I think the problem for parents in particular, I'll speak as one, is that we can get caught up in the busyness of life. Nobody intends to sort of leave out things which they would say if you ask them are important to them. But, you know, they get so overwhelmed with their job that's eating up 70 or 80 hours a week. Or they're so caught up with other things. And there's real busyness, I understand, in all of those things. There can be pressure on people in their lives. But if we allow other things to crowd out passing on 
the precious news of the gospel to the next generation, then something is wrong. We have to ask ourselves if at that point that other thing that is eating up our time has not become an idol that has pushed God away from the center. Our problem when we think about these things is, is fitting them in. As if, oh, well, I could do a bit better. As if it's kind of an add-on responsibility in my life. Whether it's my children or other people's children or friends, next generation in whatever shape or form. But no, for God in Deuteronomy 6, it's about faithfulness. This is what we're called to do as God's people. Jesus reinforces it. The apostles reinforce it in the New Testament. And so if we're failing to do this, what we are is not disorganized. We're faithless. One of the most tragic events to befall the U.S. military in the 1980s was the Sunday morning terrorist bombing. October 23, 1983, the Marine barracks in Beirut. Hundreds of Americans were killed in their sleep. Suicide bomber. Some survived, wounded as they slept. Terrible scenes in the aftermath as the whole compound was destroyed. And the few days survivors that came to the surface working to dig themselves out and then fellow soldiers from beneath the rubble woke up to what was a nightmare. Those that survived, many were flown to a hospital in Frankfurt in Germany. And several days after the tragedy, uh, the Marine Corps commander went to visit his soldiers that were wounded in that hospital. And among them, as he went round the ward, was a man named Corporal Jeffrey Nashton, who had been so wounded that people said he looked more like a machine than a man. He had so many tubes coming out of him. He could not speak could hardly move but as his commander came over he motioned that he needed something to write and they passed him pen and paper and he wrote a short note and handed it to his commander and on it were just two words the latin motto of the marines semper fi forever faithful forever faithful well, i guess i want to say to you tonight if a soldier can demonstrate that level of faithfulness despite the cost. How can Christ followers not count the cost and live faithfully for him in this idolatrous age? Only love that is undivided love is true love. Jesus is wanting your everything, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength not part of you. And he's not wanting you to treat others occasionally when they're your friends in a good way. He's wanting you to love your neighbor as yourself each and every day. He's calling you to be faithful in passing on the good news that has brought you life to the next generation. So that's never an option, but it's central to who you are. We could do worse, couldn't we, than adopting the Marines' motto, forever faithful, but for us, to Christ. The question I want to leave you with is, what level of devotion does your commanding officer Jesus find as he looks at you this day? Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that 
We are under a new covenant of grace, and it's so wonderful that we don't have the curses of the law hanging over us. That all that is done for us to be right with you has been achieved through Christ's death and resurrection. That in him we are part of your family, adopted, and we have an eternal hope that cannot spoil or fade. It can never be lost. But Father, we acknowledge too that you call us to live in a way that truly expresses our love for you, that is the totality of our life. That expresses a love for others that is real and constant. That expresses a desire to pass on those loves that are central to us, to anyone that will hear it, especially the next generation. Lord, grant that we would be people that are faithful in your service, that live for Christ, our commander, our king. For we pray it in his name. Amen.